My name is Kate Mgandawire. I um, am an enigma to your stereotypes in that I was born in Australia. I am white, but my surname is Mgandawire. I am a female, and I am up here bringing you the message today, and I'm excited to be able to be all of those things because uh, God has blessed me with many privileged opportunities. So I am on staff here at Flood. Uh, my surname is Mkandawira because I'm married to Humphreys, who was on the drums this morning. When I was thinking this week, how do I sum myself up? I would say I am very excited by children and by teenagers, despite the fact that I don't have any myself and that many of you have very well wishes that I did have some myself. <laughs> Um, so it's a huge privilege of mine to be part of the kids' church and a leader in the 11 plus, and it's a privilege to be part of the teaching team. As Pastor Sean said, we are in a series called Unto, God's Purpose for Our People Problems. Now, actually, one of my favorite quotes from this series has been when Pastor Sean said, some of us have people problems and some of us are people problems. And this morning I am talking about feelings, and I am somebody who is very good at having feelings. And I'm hoping, especially if you're a man, you're not thinking, uh-oh, here comes a people problem for me. <laughs> we are talking about the people who stir up complicated emotions in us. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me and open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 1. We're reading through to chapter 19, verse 8. So 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruah, and a third under Itay, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Itai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's army and the casualties were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and as the mule went under a thick branch of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule, was, while the mule kept riding on. When one of the men saw what had happened, he said to Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who told him this, What? 
You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai to protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Job said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. He took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Job's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have, sown, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not go today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz run, ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchmen went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out the king and to, to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He is a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw a great confusion, just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise to harm you be like that young man. And the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. 
As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned to mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men who steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom, my son. Then Joab went into the house and to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. So the king got up, took his seat in the gateway, and when the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seat. So for those who have been following along with this series, we do every second passage here in the church and every other passage in our growth groups, which is our small weekly Bible studies. And I just want to encourage you that if you are not a part of a growth group, you can come see me and I encourage you to be. Because we have been following the story of David's son Absalom over the last few weeks and here we meet the final, the finale, the um, peak of this story. And I want to talk today um, about a concept that I recently learned about, that for those of you who don't like flying, you may leave here with more complicated emotions about flying, I'm sorry. I want to talk about this concept that's called spatial disorientation, which is a concept, the name, for what a pilot experiences when he is flying in weather conditions that prevent him from seeing the horizon or from seeing the ground or any other points of reference that guide his senses. So when this happened, the pilot's perceptions become unreliable and he's no longer able to perceive which way is up and which way is down. Now, I don't know if any of you have had this sensation. I have. This not only happens for pilots, but it can happen underwater. Now, as I said, I grew up in Australia and one of our common Australian pastimes is surfing and I tried it on a few occasions, and on one of those occasions I was tossed off of the surfboard into the wave. And as I spun around underwater, I remember the feeling of panic that I no longer knew which way I could swim to get to air and which way I would swim to the bottom of the ocean. And it was a scary feeling. I had lost my sense of spatial orientation. So some interesting facts that actually five to 10% of general aviation accidents are attributed to this phenomenon, to spatial disorientation. And here's a somber fact, 90% of those accidents are fatal. So the reason I talk about this concept is because I think that it's a great way to help us understand complicated emotions. Complicated emotions 
can feel similar to us, I think, as for a pilot when a storm comes in and they are no longer able to use their senses to direct them where they are going. So actually, the best way that a pilot overcomes spatial disorientation when he enters a storm is to rely on the instruments that are built into the aeroplane. And all aeroplanes have these instruments built into them. And apparently, though I haven't checked if this is true, as part of pilot training, pilots are taught to be blindfolded so that they learn to trust their instruments and their co-pilots. And I think that this is a really helpful lesson for us when we're talking about feelings. Because I think like a pilot flying into a storm who can lose sense of their direction, we can have such overwhelming feelings that we can lose sense of what is good and what is evil. What is right and what is wrong and the direction God has and wants for us. So I want to talk about three ideas today. The first is what the experience of spatial disorientation. I'm not going to put you into an aeroplane to make you experience this, but I'm going to explain it. The second, I'm talk going to talk about the cause of storms in our lives. Then I'm going to give suggestions for how we can respond. So in terms of complicated emotions making us feel like we are spatially disoriented, I think there are three main causes of this that we see in this passage this passage where David is responding to Absalom's aggressive actions so the first I think is when we have both positive and negative emotions that arise in tension to one another so I think we see this in the story at the very beginning of what I read David came and he said I will surely march with you he was confident hey he was confident in their success. He was confident in going into battle. And his troops said to him, please don't. Your life is worth more than many of ours. And what they do is share and provoke fear in him. So he responds by saying, deal gently with Absalom. We see that there was already fear in King David. His fear is for the life of his son. So, to make this decision of whether to go to battle or not, there is a positive emotion of confidence battling with his negative emotion of fear. And we see that it takes the external input of his chosen commanders to help him make that decision. So we can have positive and negative emotions, intention that give us complicated emotions that make it hard for us to choose where to go. The second thing I think we can have are two positive emotions. And I think sometimes what we like to do is focus mostly on its only negative emotions that cause chaos for us. But it can be two positive emotions in conflict with one another that can create tension and can create that sense of being disoriented, not knowing where we're going, can make it hard for us to make decisions. And I think we see this here when David came back when David received the news that Absalom had died, he felt grief. Now, grief is a natural and I believe a positive emotion, especially when we lose someone we love. For everybody who's lost someone they love, I think you know the process of grief is a very hard one, but it is a natural one and it is a healthy one. 
On the other hand, this long, drawn-out uh, conflict with Absalom has come to an end and his people are feeling joy. So David, somewhere, should be feeling joy within him, especially to be sharing with his people this victory. But these two positive emotions of his grief and his joy for this victory, he's unable to reconcile. And again, it requires the outside counsel of Joab to come to David to help direct him in what actions he can pursue to honour his people. The third cause, I think, of complicated emotions are a single, overwhelming, driving emotion. And I think we see this most powerfully in this story in Joab. Now, if you remember going back, Joab had a long history of anger towards Absalom. And so this other warrior comes and says, I've seen Absalom in this vulnerable position, and we see only one single overwhelming emotion driving Joab, and that is anger. Joab does not hesitate to consider the responsibility he has of protecting Joab or even the command he has from his king. Instead, he plunges three javelins directly into the heart of Absalom. Joab was driven solely by anger. Now, as Pastor Sean acknowledged before, maybe you're a man and you're sitting here saying, these things don't happen to me. And Humphreys and I often joke that Humphreys only experiences two emotions. One of them is hunger and the other is tiredness. Um, but I want to challenge you, if you're a man here, that you probably have had these experiences by creating some hypotheticals. So I want you to imagine, you come home to your mother, your parents' house, you're starving hungry, and your mum is cooking fried chicken. It's sizzling on the stove, and it's smelling fantastic. And she says, we're having people over for dinner, don't touch the chicken. In you, you feel fear to disobey your mother. Even if you're an adult, you feel fear to disobey your mother and dishonor her by eating that chicken. On the other hand, you can already imagine the delight of biting into that freshly fried chicken with its crispy outside and its juicy inside. Your emotions are in tension. You have fear of your mother, but you have this hope for the delight of the chicken sooner than waiting. Imagine yourself here, and I challenge you to think, what would you do? How would you choose which emotion would guide you? The chicken, I heard somebody say, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> um, and I wanna share about a time that I think I experienced this, where I would say I was in a storm of emotions. So as I said, I'm now married to Humphreys and we've been married for about nine months now. Before we were married, some time ago now, we were both single people and we were just friends. Not the just friends, but at one point in time, we were simply friends who greeted each other on a Sunday morning. And during a, over a long season, I had a battle where I felt like I was in a storm. As affection grew in me for Humphreys, as I saw him serving the people around him, as I saw him as a um, respectable, as a God-fearing, 
as a leading man, I started to grow affection with him. But simultaneously in me, I had had a long battle with really struggling with being single. And all of a sudden I found myself in a season where I felt contentment with being single. And for those of you who are single, you might connect with that idea. All of a sudden I finally found a settledness with being single and there's this guy whom I'm attracted to and I was not sure how to reconcile those feelings. And then it became apparent to me that he had some attraction for me as well. And then grew in me another conflicting feeling of fear. What would it mean for he and I to go into a relationship? How could we honour each other? How could we honour the church community that we're a part of? How could we pursue God in a relationship across cultural and uh, economic and distance barriers to form a healthy relationship? So I had these different feelings way warring within me and I felt like for the longest time I was in the storm. I couldn't see what God was directing me to. I could no longer see what was the right or wrong action or path for me to take. And I'm actually really thankful throughout that time that I was part of a church and I had family and people around me who acted as wise counsel. People who could hear my confusion, people who could speak wisdom to me and people who could just sit and pray with me through the confusion. And it's okay because it's a happy ending story. After some time I realized storms don't vanish usually. You have to work through and move through a storm but eventually the sun breaks through and the clouds dissipate. And I'm really thankful that Humphreys was a God-seeking man and that we could go through that journey together of a storm of conflicting emotions until we could see that God was in it and was for us. And I'm so thankful now to have Humphreys as my husband. Next, I want to talk about the cause of the storm. So there are two causes of this idea of spatial disorientation. The first is an external storm. So the cause, the reason a pilot may have that experience of not being able to know their direction is because a storm comes in or some other natural cause, such as volcano ash or other elements like that. And I think uh, one of the causes for us of storms in our lives that cause complicated emotions are the deceitful forces of evil that are in our world. Ephesians 6 talks about this when it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The reality is that evil is present in our world and it means that we are in war. Now, as David was in war in this story, war was what created so much of this conflict. War meant that he had an enemy and his enemy wanted to take from him the things that mattered most. Similarly for us, as this verse alludes to, we have an enemy who is very real in this world. It's an enemy that is bent on bringing us to destruction. The devil is an enemy who is thrifty, who plays dirty, and who is persistent 
at using circumstances and at using people to provide us complicated feelings to take us off of the path of pursuing our God. And this is good for us to remember because the Bible also promises that a time of this war will come to end and talks about that there will be a time where there will be no more of these complications, where the evil one will be conquered, where we will no longer have battle around us. But right now is not that time. There are deceitful forces of evil in our world. The second cause of the storm is when a pilot loses their senses that act as a guide. So their senses are their vision, their sense of balance, If you blindfold a pilot so that they can no longer see anything, they will be spatially disoriented. If you remove their inner uh, senses. And I think it's the same for us. We have an indwelling of sin that creates complicated emotions that can easily disorient us. Romans 7.21 talks to this when it says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, raging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. Not only is there evil in the world around us that will use circumstances or other people to, promote, to provoke complicated feelings in us, We have a fallen nature and God is renewing our nature, but those two are still at war. There is an indwelling of sin within us that will create complicated emotions. So if you feel like you might be in a storm of complicated or contradicting emotions that is making it hard for you to see right and wrong, to see up and down, to see where God is calling you, the vision he's placing on your life. I want to encourage you that feelings alone are not a good guide. And I believe the predominant reason that feelings are not a good, good guide is because our emotions are wired into our fallen natures. So Satan... And our indwelling of sin can still use our feelings to manipulate us. So like in this story, when we saw David only using his grief to guide his actions, he ended up neglecting his people and he had to be rebuked by Joab. Similarly, I think it's the same with our positive emotions. I really liked this saying I learned this week. Pleasure is the measure of my treasure. What you find the greatest delight in is what you value most. If we only allow our feelings of delight to guide us, we will slip to the trap of idolizing far too easily. So I do not think that feelings are a good guide. However, Feelings can be a fantastic gauge. So for a pilot, a gauge is any of the many different measures on their 
dashboard or in their cockpit that give them a sense of where they are, how their machine is doing, where they're going. And I want to give you three instructions of how you can look to helpful gauges if you are in a storm of emotions. The first is I want to encourage you to look up. To look up to God if you are in a storm of complicated emotions. Hebrews 4.14 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. And I want to encourage you that if you feel like you are in a storm where you don't have a sense of direction because of complicated emotions, that Jesus entered storms far worse than any we will go through. Jesus entered storms at Golgotha and he entered storm, storms at Gethsemane. Not only that, Jesus entered them willingly. Furthermore, Jesus entered the ultimate storm, which was the one of God's wrath against us. And Jesus passed through that storm for us. There is no storm that Jesus cannot empathize to. There is no way you can confuse God with your own complicated emotions because God has experienced them. The second advice I want to give you is to look in and to look into God's word. Psalm 11 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're in a storm of complicated emotions, to devote yourself to reading the word, to meditating on the word. I want to encourage you to do it alone, to do it when it feels dry, to do it when it's confusing, to do it when it's hard. I also want to encourage you to open the word with others. If you're not part of a growth group, join one so that you can be opening God's word and exploring it with other people. Because God's word, the Bible, is living and it is light, and it is one of the most powerful tools or instruments God has given us to instruct and direct us through confusing times. The third piece of advice I want to give you is to look out. So look out to other people and to seek wise counsel. Proverbs actually says, those who trust in themselves are fools but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. And we see this, I think, over and over in this passage, how blessed David was by the wise counsel around him. It was the wise counsel who said, David, support us from home base. Don't come out and risk your life. It was the wise counsel who said, David, you are mourning, we know but your people will leave you if you don't allow them to celebrate. Actually, Joab says in verse 7, if you don't go out to your people, this will be worse than all the calamities you've experienced so far. So finally, I want to encourage you that if you are in a storm, if you are struggling to know right from wrong, to know where God's voice is in your life, to seek wise counsel, 
Speak to trusted friends, speak to your mentors, speak to colleagues at work, speak to your growth group leader, your growth group friend. Speak to somebody in the church leadership and ask that person to stand with you in this storm, to pray with you and to help you trust that God has promised to bring us through all, all the storms. God has promised that no matter how much we can't see, he will break through the storm with his son and he will bring us through. Let me pray. Father God, you are our high priest and yet you know all our weaknesses. There is no trial you have not faced. And I thank you for that, God. And we just come before you now. In our storms of complicated emotions, or where we are challenged, or where we feel blinded, or where we are spatially disoriented, to ask you to break through our storms to give us direction. Lord, I thank you for the good gifts that you give us of your holy word that directs us, that is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Lord, and I thank you for this church community where through many of my storms I have been held and encouraged and supported through the storm so that I could see you again in the clear skies. So I pray for everybody here, God, for anybody who is in a storm, Pray for your breakthrough in their lives. Pray that they would be able to seek wise counsel from those around them. Pray that your word would be living in their lives and that they would know you. We bless your name, God. Amen.